Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted chats with author and public speaker Madeline Black. Join us as Ted and Madeline discuss the challenge of surviving trauma. This episode covers some difficult topics, but you do not want to miss it. Some people believe there are times when people endure such horrific events that we assume they will never come back from it. That they'll be messed up psychologically the rest of their lives and that this damaged script will play itself out over and over again over the course of their lifetime. We might have even run into these people in our lives. They might, for instance, suffer from PTSD, anxiety, or depression from a past traumatic or series of traumatic events. I mean, the definition of resiliency, as defined by Webster Dictionary, is the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused, especially by compressive stress. I've always believed in possibility. I believe there are people who have endured horrific events that we've assumed will never come back from it, and they do. They honestly do, even and sometimes transcend their experience to be ultimately free. I am here with the absolutely amazing Madeleine Black, who has written the book Unbroken. It's a, an amazing book in itself and really a story of, I think, overcoming the odds in a lot of ways. And we're going to really be talking and diving deep into the topic of sexual violence, the impact it can have on people, as well as how do you get through it and how do you turn your life around. So, um, welcome, Madeline. Thank you, Ted. Lovely to be here. And you are, where are you located? I am a Londoner, but I live in Glasgow, Scotland. <laughs> now, you're like, you're the second. So, I hardly, I've never traveled to Europe. Okay. But, but now you're the second person through my podcast that I've met in London or near London. Okay. So, this is kind of virtual travel than you are. <laughs> people travel to London and then I just do podcasts and talk to people from London. <laughs> Maybe one together. <laughs> well, what I thought we where we could start would be tell us a little bit a little bit about who you are today and what message maybe you're trying to get out to the world. So I am a few things, I guess. I am a mum, I'm a wife, but I'm also a psychotherapist. I am an author, and I've now ventured into the world of public speaking. I kind of call myself an accidental speaker because I never intended to speak, but, you know, it took me a long time to find my voice, and I realized that my voice is now my power, and I won't be silent anymore. Powerful, powerful. So what made you make that like this idea of getting your voice out to the world because I, I imagine that's always like a transition for everybody but was there if you can talk a little bit about how you were able to kind of move sure. through that process because I think a lot of people think about that yeah well on the 22nd of September 2014 I shared my story publicly for the very first time with an organization called the Forgiveness Project and I was asked if I wanted to put my name or my photograph and I thought you know I don't want to hide anymore I've got nothing to be ashamed about so my full name and my photo went up alongside my story and 
the moment my story was shared, I just got messages from people thanking me that I was giving them hope that there was a way out of trauma we could convert our pain into something else. And then slowly I started to get offers to come and speak my story. So I'm very lucky. All of my events that I speak at have all been through referrals. I've never really gone to look for the work, which is why I call myself an accidental speaker, because it wasn't anything I ever thought about doing, standing on a stage, sharing my story. But it's something I can do. And it's really now, it's not about what it can do for me. It's what it can do for other people. It feels like a duty that I have to share my story if I can. Absolutely beautiful. I, I love to hear this. It's so inspiring to me to hear people Thank kind you. of like move out of the darkness and, and hide and hiding into like fully being themselves and saying, wait a second, I don't have to be ashamed of this. This is like what happened to me and this is it. Absolutely. You know, I held on to inappropriate shame for years and the shame is what keeps people down it's us down with our potential because it occupies too much of us and the fear of anybody finding out was just huge and now i don't care Mm, i love that and now i don't care (laughs) it's like a a new lease on life i love it yeah well maybe you could tell us a little bit um about your story what you think is relevant and then really what i want to get into as well is you know, how you overcame the shame. And maybe I think it might be through the portal of forgiveness, but I think so often nobody talks to us about this. You know, bad things happen to people. And oftentimes we just hide it and lock it away in a box and never, ever deal with it. And then that affects our lives in so many ways, especially when when we're younger. Absolutely. Yeah. So my story really starts in the late 1970s when I was just 13 years old and I was gang raped by two American teenagers. Um, It affected me for years and years. Uh, I couldn't speak about it to start with because they threatened me and they said if I told anybody then they would kill me and I believed them. So I understand now what we don't speak about, it leaks out of us and it leaked out of me in so many different ways. So depression, I developed an eating disorder, I had anorexia, I used anything I could to numb out drugs, alcohol, my behavior was off the wall, just rebelling, and I was very suicidal, and I attempted to take my life, which clearly didn't work, but I ended up in a children's psychiatric ward for about two months, and when I was writing my memoir, actually unbroken, I decided to get my notes to see if they had any idea how a normalish 13-year-old could turn into one overnight who couldn't eat, who couldn't speak and hated herself. But they had an idea. They only wanted to treat my eating disorder and fill me full of antidepressants. So where I am at now, you're right, it didn't happen overnight. It has been a process and it's taken me a long, long time. And forgiveness really, I guess, was the final piece in my puzzle of healing. So... It's so interesting because I'm a therapist too, and yeah, I've been in the addiction field and mental health field and work with some people mm-hmm. with eating disorders, addictions, that sort of thing. And, and your story is kind of interesting from the standpoint that that's typically where we pick people up. Like, for instance, you're psychiatrically hospitalized. All right, she's got an eating disorder and we have to deal with this, but underlying it all is the trauma. Yeah. 
I would like to hope that they treat people differently to how they treated me, but I had had contact with this psychiatrist a couple of years prior to being admitted after my suicide attempt. My mum had been unwell and we went to go for family therapy. She was bedridden at the time. So they really picked up where they left off. They thought it was a family dynamics. It was the same story repeating itself. And I guess it was just lazy medicine. They just thought I was a troubled adolescent because my mum was... I thought she was going to die at one point. So yeah, really lazy medicine is how I, what I put it down to. So did you eventually come out and tell people what happened during that period of time in your life? Or did you still keep it, it kind took, of hidden? Yeah, it took me about three years and my behavior then was really bad. And my parents were, you know, telling me not to go out. And I would obviously go out and do sort of what they said. And one day I left a note on my pillow and I school. And when I came back, my dad said, is this true? And I said, yeah, he called the other girl that was involved. And she said, no, it hadn't happened like I said it had, that they were nice boys. They were sons of diplomats and I had got it wrong. So it had taken me three years to finally find my voice. And I just felt like I wasn't believed. My dad was desperate to go to the police and my mum was really quiet and I understood my mum's silence for years I thought she didn't believe me either so that just plummeted into an even darker space at that point in my life oh so not only did it take a a long time just to be able to come out and tell somebody but then when you come out and 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 tell someone your disbelief which I think is oftentimes a very common dynamic especially like with rape victims um sexual assaults that there's this like thing of disbelief if the perpetrators aren't um, you know, deemed like criminal types and, you know, we could obviously, you know, the stereotypic rapist, if, if, yeah. if they don't look like that and they're like in this case, you know. But what is a stereotypical rapist? Stereotypical rapists can be uh, husbands, brothers, cousins, neighbors, uncles, friends, boyfriends, anybody. You know, there's not a look of a rapist. It could be anybody that you know. I, I, yes, I, I wasn't the kind of the way that media suggests that I was jumped from a bush and somebody attacked me. But most women will know the man if they're raped by a man who has raped them. I'm glad that you made that point because I think that's so profound. Um, and it goes so flies so under the radar oftentimes that we don't think of like, well, wait a second. Anybody could be a rapist. That's it. Yeah. And so I teach over at. A college in in uh, Whitewater, and uh-huh. I talk to my students. I teach this class called Alcohol and Other Drug Studies, and I usually do a section on sexual assault, and it ties into the class with drinking, sexual assault, etc. And what I'm amazed with is every semester there's usually two or three emails I'll get from the police department that says. Typically, I mean, it can happen with males for sure, too, but mm-hmm. a female's been raped on campus. Um, yeah. And then what I'm discovering in the research is universities actually, I mean, they're doing a better job of, like, taking the reports and, and trying to do something about this. But many years ago, it actually impacts the university from a safety standpoint that their safety score isn't as high as it should be and they don't want to sully their name so they will do the best that they can to cover it up yeah yeah so i I find just this whole thing we just need to talk have 
more conversations about it and like Absolutely. educate our young why people. I'm, I'm passionate about speaking about sexual violence to keep the conversation going. The research has long focused on the negative impact of trauma on the individual and how to best help that person heal and take back over their lives. However, there's been not as much research focused in on individuals who can overcome their traumatic experiences through resilience. What if we were to look at this more? Could we uncover some secrets to overcome great obstacles or setbacks or even trauma? Could going public on our story be healing in itself and maybe pave the way for a complete personal transformation? What about the possibilities? Yeah. So what do you think was the turning point for you? So you come out, you, t- you, you know, it takes so much courage to be able to even tell what happened. So you say it, you're sort of like disbelieved. And what happens next? Well, at that point in my life, my mum did the worst thing she could do to any teenage daughter. She discovered I was smoking a lot of dope, and she called all my friends' parents and told them exactly what we were up to. So I wasn't Miss Popular at school, as you can imagine, and they suggested to me maybe it would be a good idea to go away, you know, get away from all the, the bad influences that I was surrounded with, and I just thought, well, nobody at school was speaking to me at that point, and I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds a good idea. So I went to Israel for a year and I worked on a kibbutz for six months and I lived in a town called Ashkelon for six months. And near to the end of my stay, at the end of the year, I met a blonde, blue-eyed Glaswegian called Stephen, who is now my husband of 35 years, a long time ago. And, you know, we realized that things were getting serious. I could never understand why he wanted to be with somebody like me. My self was so low. I just thought I was dirty, contaminated, worthless, which is what the side effect of rape does to you. It doesn't just affect your body, it's your mind and your psyche, what it does to you. There's such an intimate crime that we carry shame, as we spoke about in the beginning. And I was amazed he still wanted to see me. I would drive him mad asking questions. And then we realized that things were getting serious and he asked me to marry him. And I reminded him of when I first met him and I said, look, you know, I'm never going to become a mum because I thought giving birth was just going to be like being raped again. And I thought, I can't put myself through that. I was terrified of men anyway, but the thought of a man assisting me in a birth or even giving birth, it was just, I can't can't go there. So we used to save all our holiday and go away three, four weeks every winter. I don't know why I live in Scotland, but I love the sunshine. And we would, uh, we would, this particular time we were in Thailand and we we finished four weeks away. We were on a beautiful beach called Koh Phi Phi on an island. And he turns to me and says, how about starting a family? And I'm all ready with my usual response of, Stephen, you know I can't do that. You know I. And something came in. And I thought, if I never become a mum, they've won. I'm given all my power and control still to these two young men. And I didn't want to do that anymore. So I thought to myself, I'm going to become a mum. And I came up with a plan. I call my best revenge and I was determined to live my life as best as I could just refusing to be identified by what had happened to me and that really was what started me on my healing journey so I have three gorgeous girls now (laughs) wow how old were you when that when when you hit that turning point 
Yes, and that was about 18, so about five years. When I, when I met him, I was about 18, 17, and that was really when we'd been married a couple of years. I was about 25. Okay. So I was 27 when I had my first daughter. It took about two years of therapy. So, so 25, though, is kind of like when you, like, I love this, like, I don't know if it's a mantra or a mission to not let, like, the rape win or these guys win over everything that you end up like not having kids, that sort of thing. So you're, it's actually a 12 year period from 13 to 25. Yeah. Um, were there any things along the way that kind of set you up for that turning point? You see, I often wonder if I was born to different parents, would I behave differently? So my mum, as we heard in the beginning, was bedridden. She'd had her neck broken during an operation, and she decided one day to get better, to heal herself, and threw away all her medication, sacked all the nurses, and used hypnosis, and really healed herself. So that showed me mind over matter. And my dad was a Holocaust survivor, and he lost his parents, his brothers and sisters. His youngest brother, Mordechai, was just six years old when he was gassed. And my dad used to say to me, uh, not really by what he said, but how he lived his life. I mean, he mucked about, he was the biggest child. But he did used to say, if this hasn't happened, I wouldn't have met your mum and had five, I'm one of five kids. And he showed me that you can have a good life after huge trauma. And I also used to think, well, if my dad can get past all of that, surely I can get past this one night. And, yeah, he was one of my greatest teachers. Wow. What an story is getting more and more extraordinary. (laughs) So it's really within the family, there's like this almost message with your mom and dad that, like, you can overcome just about anything. Yeah. And even if they didn't say that out loud... It was in me, you know, I saw that, you know, um, I became aware of it. So it's very interesting at the moment, I'm involved in a program called the Global Resilience Project, run by a woman called Emma Bell, and she's taken 50 of us, which she calls her thrivers, and she's looking at what makes us resilient, and she's come up with nine different elements that we all do. We might not all do all nine, but at some point we do two or three of them. So I'm waiting to get the research to see because uh, it fascinates me as well. You know, why was I always driven to clean it up and clean it up and just be the best person that I could? But something has always driven me internally. Eventually. Took a while. (laughs) Yeah. Is there any tidbits on that research and like any of the, any suspicions from you on what the nine? She is, she's the book together and hopefully the documentary as well. Or a film about it. So, yeah, it would be really interesting because she hopes to blueprint and they can use it for mental health. They can use it in businesses. And she wants to reach millions of people with her with her project. So I'm hoping she will. I'm sure she will. She's very driven. Wow. So so you end up having 25. There's like a, a, a breakthrough, it seems like, for you. And then you, you eventually have like a daughter, right? At 27? Yeah. Then another one. And another, another one. one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Three of them. Yeah, what does your journey look like at that point then? How, do, how does like healing unfold for you even more? Because I think like... Can there be a turning point when such an event has occurred? Or is the turning point always stacked against you? I mean, there can be so many reminders and triggers on a daily basis. 
Seeing people that remind you of the offenders or being in experiences which cause anxiety and then remind you of these traumatic experiences. On top of it, there can be so many mixed emotions connected to the event. You can feel depressed and sad one day and then have intense anger and hate the next day, followed by guilt and self-doubt. How do you make sense of it all? Some people, you know, they're trauma survivors and they don't really think of like trauma, like thriving. And the journey is so individualized for everyone. And sometimes it seems like like a huge like thing to overcome. Like, will I ever Mm -hmm. get through this? And Yep. (laughs) Thought that many times. Yeah. So I'm kind of wondering just for like our listeners, uh, like there could be, there'll be people listening out there that might be trauma survivors and maybe even endured similar experiences, that sort of thing. Without a doubt, because my story is not uncommon. Uh, Without, there will be people listening right now that have been abused or raped in some way. So really, I guess when I had my kids, I thought that I was okay. But it's very funny how we can convince ourselves that we're really okay, but we're not. (laughs) When I look back in retrospect, I can see I still had fears. I still had phobias. You know, I was on auto uh, alert, you know, hyper alert all the time. And it was interesting. I was a volunteer crisis center. And during the training, they put up the symptoms of PTSD, and I went, oh, I've got that, oh, I've got that, I've got that, I've got, oh my, God. I had pretty much all of the list, apart from self-harming, I could never pick up a knife, because I had a fear of knives, so I could never cut myself, so it was one to this huge list, and I'd been living with undiagnosed PTSD for years, and you wouldn't have known, I was like my dad, I used my, my laughter and my love of life to cover a lot of things up, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, and really when Anna turned 13 that completely changed everything so I was studying psychotherapy my course was very experiential and I was doing a lot of personal development not just talking therapy but loads of different types of therapies and when Anna turned 13 my memories came back from that night so many memories just they came back in flashbacks nightmares and dreams and at first I thought I was actually going mad because I thought if it was so bad, I would remember it. Now I understand it's because it was so bad. That's why I didn't remember it. And I went to therapy. I was the worst client possible because I said, I want you to take these memories away. I don't want to see them anymore because it was like a porn film going around in my head, but I was the star of the film. And I realized actually that my way in was going to be my way out. So I had to find a way to really accept and be okay with what was done to me because it was actually, after a while, it was my denying it, not wanting to believe it, uh, refusing to think that people could be so violent towards another human being. That was actually causing me more distress than the memories themselves. So it took about another three years of therapy and it was very near to the end when things turned again on their head and he suggested to me, you know, maybe these two young men weren't born rapists. Uh, what the, how can you say that to me? I was so angry with him, you know, because I fantasized for years about somebody kidnapping them, taking them to an empty flat, uh, beating them up, tying them up, raping and torturing them for four or five hours on end, just like they had done to me. But he planted a seed and that seed 
I guess it started to grow and I really found myself wanting to understand well, how could they know to be so violent towards another human being? What had conditioned them to make them behave that way? What had they seen, heard or experienced? And I saw that in their dehumanizing of me, they're really just dehumanizing themselves, that they're not connected to their goodness, their source, their hara, whatever you want to call it. And somewhere, I don't know how, but I started to feel compassion towards these two young men. And I thought, you know, I've done a really good job in living my life, but they have to live with what they've done to me. And that won't be easy. So I found myself forgiving them, not the act of rape. I would never forgive the act of rape, but I could forgive them for being human and the human predicament. So at the time, he plants the seed, but you leave the office angry and pissed. Oh, so angry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yet, did it take like six months or a year for sort of that different side to emerge in you or was it still I don't know that it was maybe just like I can't remember the time frame not that long okay like a few three four weeks maybe it kept going over and over in my head and then you know I have a really good friend Anne who used to be my manager where I worked at a counseling center and something she said came back to me she used to be a midwife and she said to me that she has delivered thousand babies and she never met an evil baby and mm. that made me think, you know, I believe we all come in the same way, we're all a blank sheet. What happened to their blank sheet? What had they seen? What had they experienced? What had they heard? And I really wanted to understand why. And I also saw if I held on to all my anger, my revenge and my uh, hurt, they had no idea. It wasn't doing anything to them. It was only harming me, my husband, my kids. So I forgave them really for them. I didn't need them in front of me to say, you know, tell me that you're sorry. It was an internal decision within my heart. I could um, choose to forgive them. And in choosing, making that decision, it allowed me to let go of everything. It, It really brought me peace. So I guess you could say it was for me, it was nothing to do with them. Can there be a turning point? And can you get a new perspective on who raped you? Actually feeling compassion for them? maybe even forgiving them for the rape and seeing them as human. So even if you were able to forgive them, what would you do with all your anger and hate toward them? Would the revenge fantasy bring healing and relief? Or maybe is it normal just to go through this as a victim? So how long were you walking around with sort of like that angry revenge fantasy? Was that like Oh, like a decade, oh, years. like years. Oh yeah, years and years. Yeah, years. Oh, and I was so angry, and I would, I would also be so scared. I would imagine I could see them everywhere. You know, I'd be really angry. Then I think, oh god, is that them? And then I'd be really scared. So yeah, I just thought I wanted them to know. I wanted someone to chop their penis off. You know, I had horrible images in. And I thought, does that make me just as bad as them? If I can, if I'm able to have these, what does that say about me as well? So, yeah, that, that was a hard time. But I, I was so angry. I was so bitter. I was so sarcastic. Yeah, I was horrible. Really. So when you were, like, in that space of anger, how do you think that affected, like, the relationships around you when you were in that phase? Because I, I imagine that's well, a common I, phase. 
Absolutely. I, I kind of look at it that then, when I was like that, that I was really um, kind of in a deep freeze numbed out so much my anger was on the outside but I now understand again anger is very easy to display it's what's underneath it is really hard to display so the bigger the front the smaller the back you know when we're really angry especially men that I work with in Scotland it often covers up their hurt and disappointment mm. so uh, the anger was just it was like my brick wall I had built around me so it really stopped me from coming out but it stopped anybody coming near me Wow. I mean, so, so then what happens? I mean, this is a process going on. You're walking around for like 10 years, angry. Yeah. The therapist drops, you know, you know, plants the seed. A different person, you have the conversation with your friend who delivers babies that says, I've mm-hmm. never met an evil baby, sort of like impacts you. What happens after that then? Is it just like instant, for, like a lot of people would say like, then is it instant forgiveness and now you're self-actualized and you're good to go? For me, actually, it, it pretty was, but I think it wasn't, it wasn't that thing that was overnight. It was all the groundwork that I had done, all the different types of therapies. I went to body therapy. I went to sweat lodges. I took ayahuasca, San Pedro. I did therapeutic massage. I did transformational breath work everything to clean up and clean up so by the time I got to that stage the end of another lot of therapy you know I guess it was pretty much out of my system as well because when we get traumatized and we can't speak about it as yourself it gets trapped in our body so every time I went to therapy and we looked at another scene or another thing they did to me I would literally be shaking I would be crying I've been sick in sessions it took me right back to that moment but then every time I did that it also then kind of diluted that energy that was associated with that picture that I had in my mind so I guess it's a bit like immersion therapy you know and eventually there was no sting left in the energy it had really diluted completely so I don't feel now inside there's any emotional residue left at all nothing triggers me affects me impacts on me in any way and how long has it been like that yeah really now I'd say so Anna is 26 I think since that time about 13 years ago when I started to really look at forgiveness and then I started to research it and then I came across the Forgiveness Project and then I got involved with them and I saw other people's stories and I saw that it's really possible to transform our pain into something else and then I saw it was a choice thing and I'm not saying you can choose that overnight. I had to do all the groundwork. I couldn't have got to that choice if I hadn't worked the trauma. So because I had worked it and worked it and worked it, I saw I could hold on to it all, or I could let it go. Mm. So if you were a victim of some sort of trauma, what would you do and where would you start? I mean, starting somewhere is a hard decision to make when you've spent a great deal of time trying not to think about this event. Why would you want to open the old wound up again? It's haunted you for years, and now you're telling me to think about it again? Guess what, buddy? I spent years trying to get over it. But what could happen if we reached out for support 
and began to unfreeze this trauma in a different kind of way, the kind of way that could allow the story and script to change in the future? What if by opening up about it, we could change our life script and path? So what's your, what would be your message to someone similar to yourself, 13 years old, they get gang raped, they lock it inside themselves. Um, If you had a chance to give them like a message of hope or like some guidance. Sure. I would say to anyone. Whatever age you are, whatever gender, if you've been a victim of rape, sexual abuse, sexual violence, don't leave it inside. Find someone to share your story with. It doesn't have to be a therapist, somebody you trust. And if you can't find somebody you trust, tell it to yourself. Write it down. You know, this this denial thing is so strong when you've had a trauma like rape. And, you know, we judge ourselves and we're judged by society. And you have to stop that if you can find a way never ever too late to get support there's always help out there but to never share your story it will hold you back in some way and to know that it was never ever your fault it doesn't matter what you were wearing drinking smoking if you were out late the middle of the afternoon your husband a hundred percent of all rapes are caused by rapists hmm wow what a journey I'm yeah, just, I'm like you could say that. <laughs> you're amazing. I mean, just like the fortitude and the resilience to keep going. Because what I, yeah. as as you're speaking, what what I was thinking of was this idea of trauma occurs, rape happens, people lock it inside themselves and hide it and spend their energy. Obviously, I mean, you have to. I mean, at some level to to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Like all the energies focusing on containing it and hiding it yeah and then as you as you tell your story and it's not like there's this magical moment when everything leaves but you know you said i did this ted i did that i did this kind of therapy i did this kind of body work and what i see from that is like this this movement from hiding to beginning to move forward and outward towards something better and maybe it was your mission Absolutely. at the time. I'm not going to let them win yes, the South. Something always clean up, I call it, to clean up the mess inside me, to drain the swamp <laughs> of my trauma. Something just always, just, I don't know what it was internally. Something's always just driven me. Amazing. Well, I have a few other questions. Do we? Sure. What is your brightest moment over the past year and how do you continue to, you know, stay the course of where you're at in terms of healing? Yeah, well, now actually I don't really think about all. Yes, I guess I do think about it because I speak about it, but I don't think about any of the impact of rape anymore because it really honestly 100% does not affect me in any way I do not think about these two men in any negative ways anymore I wish them well and hope they get on with their life I have no interest in seeing them and I realize now before I had done all of this work it occupied so much space inside of me and now there's more space there's more space for me the real me to emerge and that's what's so important to really work the trauma 
Thank you. Is there ever anybody that might say, I'm like so angry and upset about it. How could I possibly even bring myself to forgive? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I have had that message a few times. So I would say you don't have to heal. You don't have to forgive in order to heal. But this was my choice. This is how I decided to do it. And in the very beginning, I had to forgive myself for just being naive 13-year-old girl out on a night to have a night of fun and lied about where she was staying. And uh, forgiveness, as I said, it was my key to freedom because I had put myself in a prison of hate and revenge and hurt. They hadn't put me there. That was how I was landed. And so I really saw that it's not what happens to us that is important, but it's what we do with what happens to us that really matters. And after a while, I saw I'm not my body. I'm not the things that were done to me. The true essence of me could never, ever really be touched by them. And that's really what drives me to show people that we're not our events. Yes, our events do influence our life. And in a strange way, I wouldn't undo what happened to me, but I wouldn't wish it on anyone else either. But we're not really what happens to us. We're far more than that. Mm. For some reason, the book written by Viktor Frankl comes to mind. Yeah. 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 Just kind of like, in a you know, this idea that things happen to us, which obviously we don't want to have happened to us, but it's almost, and I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so help me if I'm off on this, but your healing really started first with you internally. There's nothing to do with your external world. It's your internal world. It's where it all takes place, which is why I said the way in was my way out. Mm. So powerful. So powerful. Um, has there been a recent struggle over the past year or, or you know, something that's come up in life for the last couple of years where you used your ability to forgive, to overcome that challenge? I would say now I don't really have any challenges. <laughs> I just get all that. Every day, I think, you know, I, you know, it was very, very awful what happened to me. And I came very close to dying. And now I see that, obviously, they didn't kill me. But now I, I really am very grateful to be alive. So I, I do really appreciate every day, every moment, every person I meet. is just all incredible to me. Really, it's amazing. I, I have life. Life is for living. You, you were a and light. I don't take it too seriously, really. <laughs> Even though I, it was very serious of many, many years of my life, I, I can't take it too seriously because it is for living. You're a light in this if world. We, if, oh, if, we, if we don't heal our past, then we can't live in the present. We can't dream our future. And I really want everyone to find a way to just live in the moment, not being chained by their past. What a great message. How do you think substance use might play a role in sexual violence? From the perpetrator or from the victim? Both, if you want. Yeah, it, it shouldn't make any difference because babies are raped, women in hijabs are raped, uh, women that are elderly are raped, men that are you know elderly are raped. It, yes, some may have alcohol in the makeup, but that's not an excuse. That's not the reason. And as I said before, 100% of all rapes are called 
caused by rapists. Alcohol doesn't rape. It's the rapist that's doing the raping. Yeah. And if we put our focus onto alcohol, well, she was drunk or he was drunk, then we can start the kind of victim blaming. And that's not really what we want to do. So we want to put all our focus on the people that are choosing to rape. And how can we stop that? How can we educate people at a young age to really change our society? What, what do you think would be like a good place to start in terms of education of young people to begin to change our societal beliefs around that? The younger, the better. For me, I would start a nursery, maybe not necessarily talking about rape, but talking about respect, talking about healthy relationships, talking about consent. And consent can mean anything, you know, in a sexual relationship. But consent, do you want to kiss your grandma? Hello, often we're forced to do as little kids, two, three, go and kiss your grandpa, go sit on your uncle's knee, go and give him a hug. What about choosing you know, making that decision for yourself as a three-year-old, no, mummy, I don't want to today. And that's okay. You know, empowering people to find their voice, to make their own choices. So when it comes to sex, don't, you know, give in and, and have sex. You don't get coerced or pressurized on a date. You say, actually, no, I don't want to do it. So talking about consent and educating boys that it's okay for a woman to change her mind or in a same-sex relationship, it's okay to change your mind. A lot of education needed. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. And it it really, like, resonated with me. I'm like, that totally makes so much sense to educate at a younger age. And the idea that what you just said at the end there, that just because there's intimacy involved and maybe, like, Mm -hmm. for instance, hypothetically, the guy wants to go all the way Uh and the woman might start out, like, interested, but then she changes her mind but then because in the relationship, she just says, all right, I don't want to get in an argument, blah, blah, blah. I'll just kind of give in. Um, that's like at a more, it's something that's really not talked about. It could yeah. be a man or woman that had been married. They, there's no domestic violence. They seem to be a good couple, that sort of thing. And then there's mm-hmm. that pressure, that, that subtle pressure that occurs. And it's mm-hmm. actually probably a violation. It was a, a lot of rape in marriage. And it was interesting when I was writing my memoir, um, I just thought I had a lot of bad sex when I was younger because I became very promiscuous, which is a normal side effect. Well, one of the side effects after you've been raped. And when I was writing, I thought, actually, you know, I said no there. And he yes and carried on. And there were three occasions and the chapters are called another and another and another. And so many friends said to me, you know, made me think about a past relationship where I was the same... I realize now that I was raped. So not many people have had the same extreme event that I had at 13, but so many people have messaged me about date rapes, acquaintance rapes, rapes by husbands. And they said, actually, it's made them really think about what they called also bad sex. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think it's something that's just off the radar and that we need more conversation around and more education around. Absolutely. How important is a support system in overcoming sexual assault? We need to have a support system there. I don't know what it's like over where you are, but the resources here are very restricted. So we have Rape Crisis Center. I worked, you could have up to 10 sessions. Now, as you know, as a therapist, it could take somebody 10 sessions just to trust you, just to find their voice. And then you're saying, sessions are over so a lot of the the centers here rely on funding and it should just be funded by the government we should 
have to rely on fundraisers and this, that and the other. And lots of services are cut because there's not enough money. So rather than cutting them, we actually need more services. We need so much support. And Me Too is great, but the more people that are coming out, well, where are they going to go for support if they're cutting all the services? So, yeah, it's always more support needed. Any valuable resources you might share on the internet, books, podcasts, or meetings for somebody who's been sexually assaulted and maybe they just have been and they're trying to deal with it? Maybe they're locked up inside themselves and like they're scared. They don't know what to do with it. Maybe yeah. they're hating on themselves, that sort of thing, and feeling bad. What is like the, a good first step? I mean, the, the internet it has so many good points and bad points, but the good thing is. There's so many online communities. So go onto Twitter, Facebook, you know, look at research websites. And if you can't see someone in person, there's tons of helplines. Or you can send in emails now and you'll get a response from a support worker. But there will be someone out there for you. So find that someone. And as I said before, it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist. I'm not trying to put us out of work. But, you know, find someone that just share your story with don't suffer in silence find your voice because the silence really protects the perpetrators and it damages us Thank so we you. have to find a way to silence and the more of us that speak out the it's the better because i know it was the courage of somebody else speaking out help me find my voice and i know when i speak out i help others find their voice and it's the ripple effect so it goes on what great great messages great messages well, um, I would like to thank you um, for coming on the podcast. And I don't know if you have time, but we have a speed round where I ask kind of, they're more like not less serious questions. Sure. And then you just respond to them. <laughs> okay, go for it. All right. <laughs> but it's, but I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> <laughs> what has been one of your biggest insights in overcoming sexual assault? that I am not the things that were done to me. Mm. If you could have learned something earlier about sexual assault and how to heal from it, what would have that been? Tell someone sooner. Don't suffer in silence. The shame is not yours. Mm. What is your favorite food? Oh, I want my favorite food. Japanese food. Japanese food. <laughs> <laughs> If you could be a musical instrument, what instrument would you be? Ah, musical instrument. I think a guitar. I like uh, the sound of a guitar. A guitar, the sound? Yeah. Um, what is one of your favorite hobbies? I do karate. So I love karate. Oh, nice. How long have you been doing that? Oh, I didn't. I was a late starter. So I started when I was about 41. So it's never too late to start. Stop. And I am stand now. Should and my grading many years ago to get my second down, but yeah, it was part of my facing my fears to put myself into situations where I felt really uncomfortable. So I told you I'm quite a, yeah, something always drove me. So I was really scared of men. I was really scared of being out of control. And I thought, what's the safe way to challenge that? So I went to karate. Mm. If you could be an actor or actress, who would you choose to be and why? Oh, who would I choose to be? Uh, I quite like Sandra Bullock. I think she's kind of quite feisty and has some good roles and good messages. And I like her movies. Well, thank you. That's it. 
you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, Ted. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to Madeline Black for sharing your time with us. To learn more about Madeline and her work, visit madelineblack.co.uk. Madeline's memoir, Unbroken, is available on Amazon. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.